Section 11 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section Number 11, Chapter 4, The Triumph of Christianity by the Reverend M. Lindsay. The old or official religions of Greece and of Rome had lost most of their power long before Constantine first declared that Christianity was henceforth to be recognized as a religio licita, and then proceeded to bestow the imperial favor on the faith which his predecessors had persecuted. Hellenism had destroyed their influence over the cultivated classes, and other religions, coming from the East, had captivated the masses of the people. If temples dedicated to the gods of Olympus were still standing open, if the time-honoured rites were still duly and continuously celebrated, if the official priesthood, recognised and largely supported by the state, still performed its appointed functions, these things no longer compelled the devotion of the crowd. The imperial cult of the Divi and Divae, once so popular, had also lost its power to attract and to charm. The routine of ceremonial worship was still performed. The well-organized priesthood, spreading all over the empire, maintained its privileged position. But crowds no longer thronged the temples, and the rites were neglected by the great mass of the population. Yet this did not mean, as has often been supposed, the universal triumph of Christianity. It may almost be said that paganism was never so active, so assertive, so combative as in the third century. But this paganism, for long the successful rival of Christianity and its real opponent, was almost as new to Europe as Christianity itself. Something must be known about it and its environment, ere the reaction under Julian and the final triumph of Christianity can be sympathetically understood. During the earlier centuries of the Roman Empire, the process of disintegration was completed, which had begun with the conquests of Alexander the Great. Instead of a system of self-contained societies, solidly united internally, and fenced off from all external, social, political and religious influences which characterized ancient civilization, this age saw a mixing of peoples and a cosmopolitan society hitherto unknown. If fighting went on continuously somewhere or other on the extended frontiers of the great empire, peace reigned within its vast domains. A system of magnificent roads, for the most part passable all the year round, united the capitals with the extremities, from Britain and Spain on the west to the Euphrates on the east. The Mediterranean had been cleared of pirates, and lines of vessels united the great cities on its shores, travelling whether for business, health, or pleasure, was possible under the empire with a certainty and a safety unknown in after centuries until the introduction of steam. It was facilitated by a common language, a coinage universally valid, and the protection of the same laws. Men could start from the Euphrates and travel onwards to Spain, using one lingua franca everywhere understood. Greek could be heard in the streets of every commercial town, in Rome, Marseille, Cadiz and Bordeaux, on the banks of the Nile, of the Orontes, and of the Tigris. 
With all these things to favour it, the movements of peoples within the empire had become incalculably great, and all the larger cities were cosmopolitan. Families from all lands, of differing religions and social habits, dwelt within the same walls. National, social, intellectual and religious differences faded insensibly. Thinking became eclectic as it had never been before. This growing community, in habit of thought and even of religious belief, was fared by something peculiar to the times. The soldier of many lands, the travelled trader, the tourist in search of pleasure, and the invalid wandering in quest of health, were common then as now. But a special characteristic of the end of the third and the beginning of the fourth century was the widely wandering student, the teacher far from the land of his birth, and the itinerant preacher of new religions. The empire was well provided with what we should now call universities. Rome, Milan and Cremona were seats of higher learning for Italy. Marseille, Bordeaux and Autun for Gaul, Carthage for North Africa, Athens and Apollonia for Greece, Tarsus for Cilicia, Smyrna for Asia, Beirut and Antioch for Syria, and Alexandria for Egypt. The number of foreign students to be found at each was remarkable. Young Romans enrolled themselves at Marseille and Bordeaux, Greeks crossed the seas to attend lectures at Antioch, and found as their neighbours men from Assyria, Phoenicia and Egypt. At Alexandria, the number of students from distant parts of the empire exceeded largely those from the neighbourhood. At Athens, whose schools were the most famous in the beginning of the 4th century, the crowds of barbarians, for so the citizens called those foreign students, were so great that it was said that their presence threatened to spoil the purity of the language. Everywhere in that age of wandering, the student seemed to prefer to study far from home and to flit from one place of learning to another. Nor were the professors much different. They commonly taught far from their native land. Even at Athens, it became increasingly rare to find a teacher who belonged by birth to Greece. They too travelled from one university seat to another. Lucian, Philostratus, Apuleius, all who portray the age and the class, described their wanderings. Missionaries of new cults went about in the same way. Bands of itinerant devotees, the prophets and priests of Syrian, Persian, possibly of Hindu cults, passed along the great Roman roads. Solitary preachers of oriental faiths, with all the fire of missionary enthusiasm, tramped from town to town, drawn by an irresistible impulse to Rome, the centre of power, the protectress of the religions of her myriad subjects, the tribune from which, if a speaker could only ascend it, he might address the world. The end of the third and the beginning of the fourth century was an age of religious excitements, of curiosity about strange faiths, when all who had something new to teach about the secrets of the soul and of the universe hawked their theories as traders their merchandise. This mixture of peoples, this new cosmopolitanism, this hurrying to and fro of religious teachers, brought it about that Oriental faiths, at first only the religions of groups of families who had brought their cults with them into the West, made numerous converts and spread themselves over the Roman Empire. These Oriental religions prospered the more because from the middle of the 3rd century onwards Rome was looking to the East for many things. From it 
came the deftest artisans and mechanics who gave to life most of its material comforts. It largely contributed to feed Rome with its grain. Its philosophy, for most of the greatest stoical thinkers were not Greeks but Orientals, gave the substructure to Roman law, and the most famous law school in the 3rd, 4th and 5th centuries was not in Rome but at Beirut. Ulpian came from Tyre and Papinian from Syria. The greatest non-Christian thinkers of these centuries were neither Greeks nor Romans, but Orientals. Plotinus was an Egyptian, Iamblichus, Porphyry, and Libanius were Syrians, Galen was an Asiatic. Oriental ideas were slowly changing Rome's political institutions themselves, and the princeps of a republic, as was Octavius, became in the persons of Diocletian and Constantine an Oriental monarch. Rome, by the discipline of its legions, by the mingled severity and generosity of its rule, by the justice of its legislation, had conquered the East. Eastern thought, wedded to Hellenism, was in its turn subjugating the empire. Its religions had their share in the conquest. Among those Oriental faiths which spread themselves over civilized Europe, some were much more popular than others. All entered the empire at an early date and won their way very slowly at first. Most of them seem to have made some alliance with the survivals of such Greek mysteries as those of Eleusis and of Dionysos. All of them, save that of Mithras, had been affected, and to some extent changed, by Hellenism before they entered into the full light of history in the beginning of the third century. From Asia Minor came the worship of Sibylle, with its hymns and dances, its mysterious ideas of a deity dying to live again, its frenzies and trances, its soothsayings and its bloodbaths of purification and sanctification. From Syria came the cult of the Dea Syra, described by Lucian the Skeptic, with its sacred prostitutions, its more than hints of human sacrifices, its mystics and its pillar saints. Persia sent forth the worship of Mithras, with its initiations, its sacraments, its mysteries, and the stern discipline which made it a favourite religion among the Roman legionaries. Egypt gave birth to many a cult. Chief among them was the worship of Isis. Before the end of the second century, it had far outstripped Christianity and could boast of its thousands where the religion of the cross could only number hundreds. It had penetrated everywhere, even to far-off Britain. A ring bearing the figure of the goddess's constant companion, the dog-headed Anubis, has been discovered in a grave in the Isle of Man. Votaries of Isis could be found from the Roman wall to Land's End. The worship of Isis may be taken as a type of those oriental faiths before whose presence the official gods of Olympus were receding into the background. The cult had a body of clergy, highly organised, a book of prayers, a code of liturgical actions, a tonsure, vestments, and an elaborate, impressive ceremonial. The inner circle of its devotees were called the religious, like the monks of the Middle Ages. Those who were altogether outside the faith were termed pagans. The service of the goddess was a holy war, and her worshippers of all grades were banded together in a militia. Apuleius, himself converted to the faith, has in his Metamorphoses described its ceremonies of worship and enabled us to see how desires after a better life drew men like himself to reverence the deity and enrolled himself among her followers. He has described, with a vividness that makes us see them, the stately processions which moved with deliberate pace 
through the crowded and narrow streets of oriental towns, and drew after them to the temple many a hitherto unattached inquirer. We can enter the temple with him, and listen to the solemn exhortation of the high priest, hear him dwell upon the past sins and follies of the neophyte, and the unfailing goodness and mercy of the goddess, whose eyes had followed him through them all, and who now waited to receive him, if he truly desired to become her disciple and worshipper. The initiation was a secret rite, and Apuleius is careful not to profane it by description, but we learn that there was a baptism, a fast of ten days, a course of priestly instruction, sponsors given to the neophyte, and in the evening a reception of the new brother by the congregation, where everyone greeted him kindly and presented him with some small gift. We can penetrate with him into the secret chamber reserved for the higher initiation, where he was taught that he would endure a voluntary death which was to look upon as the gateway into a higher and better life. We can dimly see him excited with wild anticipations, dizzy with protracted fasting, almost suffocated by surging vapours, blinded by sudden and unexpected flashes of light, undergo his hypnotic trance, during which he saw unutterable things. I trod the confines of death and the threshold of proserpine. I was swept round all the elements and back again. I saw the sun shining at midnight in purest radiance, Gods of heaven and gods of hell I saw face to face and adored in presence. We can understand how such an hypnotic trance marked a man for life. Isis worship, humanized by Hellenism, extracted from the crude, wild legends of Egypt, the thought of a suffering and all-merciful mother goddess who yearned to ease the woes of mankind. It raised the beast gods of the Nile and the tales about them into emblems and parables. It captured the common man by its thaumaturgy. For the more cultured intelligences, it had a more sublime theology, which appealed to the philosophy of the day. In all this, it was a type, perhaps the best, of those oriental cults which were permeating the empire. All those religions, whatever their special form of teaching or variety of cult, brought with them thoughts foreign to the old official worships of Greece and Rome, though not altogether strange to the mysteries which had for long been the real people's religion in Greece, nor to the cult of Dionysus, which in various forms had preserved its vitality. They taught, or perhaps it would be more correct to say that the action of the subtle Greek intellect, playing upon the crude ideas which these oriental religions presented to it, evolved from them, a series of religious conceptions foreign to the old paganism, and these became common parts of the newer non-Christian intelligence, which was powerful in the 3rd and 4th centuries. A sharp distinction, much more definite than anything previous, was drawn between the soul and the body. The soul belonged to a different sphere and was more estimable than the body. The former was the inhabitant of a higher and better world and was therefore immortal. The thoughts of individuality and personality became much clearer. In the same way, the thoughts of Godhead as a whole and of the world as a whole conceptions scarcely separate before, were distinguished more or less clearly. Godhead became what the world was not, and yet something good and great, which was the primal basis of all things. The earlier philosophical depreciation of the world of matter became more emphatic and raised the question whether the creation of the whole material world and of the body which belonged to it was not, after all, a mistake. Whether the body was not a prison or at least a house of correction, in which the soul was grievously detained, 
whether the soul could ever become what it really was until it had undergone a deliverance from the body. Such deliverance was called salvation, and much practical thinking was expended on the proper means of effecting it. Might not knowledge, and the means it suggested of living purely, or with as little bodily contamination as possible, while this life lasted, be the beginnings of entrance into the real and eternal life of the soul? Was it not most likely that souls had been gradually confined in bodies, and must not the process of delivery be gradual also? The gradual way of return to God became a feature in almost all those eastern cults, by whatever means they sought to accomplish it. Perhaps, however, the most novel thought was the conviction that something more than knowledge, beyond any means of living purely which human wisdom could suggest, something outside man and belonging to the sphere of divinity, was needed to start the soul on this gradual way of return, and sustain his faltering footsteps along the difficult path. Contact with the Godhead was needed to save and redeem. Such contact was to be found in a consecration, mysterium, sacramentum, initiation, wherein the soul, in some hypnotic trance, was possessed by the deity who overpowered it, and forever afterwards led it step by step along the path of salvation or way of return. Perhaps something more than any such consecration was needed. Might not some surer way be found if only diligently sought for? It might be in one of the older cults whose inner meaning had never been rightly understood, or in some mystery not yet completely accessible, or in a divinely commissioned man who had not yet appeared. It might even be found within the soul itself, if men could only discover and use the true powers of the human soul, higher thought. At all events it was held that true religion really implied a detachment from the world and included a strict discipline of soul and body while life lasted. Such a paganism was very different from the polytheism with its furred, feathered and scaly deities which first confronted Christianity and was attacked by the early Christian apologists. The later ones recognised its power. Firmicus Maternus, writing in the time of Constantine, dismisses with good-humoured scorn the deities of Olympus and their myths, but criticises with thorough earnestness the Oriental religions. It had, in spite of its external multiformity, a natural cohesion in virtue of the circle of common thoughts above described. It hardly deserves the name of polytheism, for its idea of one abstract divinity, separate from the world of matter, made it monotheism of a kind and evidence shows that its votaries regarded Isis, Sibylle, and the rest more as the representatives and impersonations of the one godhead than as individual deities. Inscriptions from tombstones reveal that worshippers did not attach themselves to one cult exclusively. The varying forms of initiation were all separate methods of attaining to union with the one divinity. The different ceremonies of purification were all ways of reaching the same end, and as one might succeed where another failed, they could be all tried impartially. Just as we find men and women in the beginning of the sixteenth century enrolling themselves in several religious associations of different kinds, witness Dr. Pfeffinger, a member of thirty-two religious confraternities, so in the third and fourth centuries members of both sexes were initiated into several cults and performed the lustrations prescribed by very different worships, in order to miss no chance of union with divinity, and to leave no means of purification and sanctification untried. 
the tombstone of Vettius Agorius Pretextatus, the friend of Symmachus, who took part in the Saturnalia of Macrobius, recalls that he had been initiated into several cults and that he had performed the Taurobolium. His wife, Aconia Paulina, was more indefatigable still. This lady, a member of the exclusive circle of the old pagan nobility of Rome, went to Eleusis and was initiated with baptism, fasting, vigil, hymn-singing, into the several mysteries of Dionysos, of Ceres, and Corre. Not content with these, she went on to Lerna, and sought communion with the same three deities in different rites of initiation. She travelled to Aegina, was again initiated, slept or waked in the porches of the small temples there, in the hope that the divinities of the place in dream or waking vision might communicate to her their way of salvation. She became a hierophant of Hecate, with still different and more dreaded rites of consecration. Finally, like her husband, she submitted herself to the dreadful and to us disgusting purification won in the Taurobolium. A great pit was dug, into which the neophyte descended naked. It was covered with stout planks, placed about an inch apart. A young bull was led or forced upon the planks. It was stabbed by the officiating priest in such a way that the thrust was mortal and that the blood might flow as freely as possible. As the blood poured down on the planks and dripped into the pit, the neophyte moved backwards and forwards to receive as much as possible of the red, warm shower, and remained until every drop had ceased to drip. Inscription after inscription records the fact that the deceased had been a Tauroboliatus or a Tauroboliata, had gone through this bloodbath in search of sanctification. Evidence from inscriptions seems to show that in the declining days of paganism, the energy of its votaries drove them in greater numbers to accumulate initiations and to undergo the more severe rites of purification. This multiform and yet homogeneous paganism had the further support of a system of philosophy expounded and enforced by the greatest non-Christian thinkers of the age. Neoplatonism, the last birth of Hellenic thought, not without traces of Oriental parentage, has the look of a philosophy of hesitation and expectancy. It had lost the firm tread of Plato and Aristotle, and feared that the human intelligence unaided could not penetrate and explain all things. The intellectual faculty of man was reduced to something intermediate between mere sense-perception and some vague intuition of the supernatural, and the whole energy of the movement was concentrated on discovering the means to follow out this intuition and to attain by it not only communion, but union with what was completely and externally divine. Its great thinker was Plotinus, died 269, his disciples Porphyry, 233-304, and Iamblichus, died circa 330, made it the basis and buttress of paganism when it was fighting for its life against a conquering Christianity. If the universe of things, seen and unseen, be an emanation from absolute being, the primal cause of all things, the fountain from which all existence flows, and the haven to which everything that has reality in it will return when its cycle is complete, then every heathen deity has its place in this flow of existence. Its cult, however crude, is an obscure witness to the presence of the intuition of the supernatural. The legends which have gathered round its name, if only rightly understood, are mystic revelations of the divine which permeates all things. Its initiations and rites of purification are all meant to help the soul on the same path of return 
by which it completes its cycle of wanderings. The new paganism can be represented to be the collected flower and fruit of all the older faiths presented and ready to satisfy the deeper desires of the spirit of man. Neoplatonism could present itself as a naturalistic, rational polytheism, retaining all the old structures of tradition, of thought, and of social organization. The common man was not asked to forsake the deities he was wont to reverence. The Roman was not required to despise the gods, who, as his forefathers believed, had led them to the conquest of the world. The cultured Hellenist was taught to overstep, without disturbing, creeds which for him were worn out, and to seek and find communion with the divine which lies behind all gods. The very conjurer was encouraged to cultivate his magic. Pantheism, that wonder-child of thought and of the fantasy, included all within the wide sweep of its sheltering arms and made them feel the claim of a common kinship. Jesus himself, had his followers allowed, might have had a place between Dionysos and Isis. But Christianity, which according to Porphyry had departed widely from the simple teaching of the mystic of Galilee, was sternly excluded from the Neoplatonist brotherhood of religions. Its idea of a creation in time seemed irreligious to Porphyry. Its doctrine of the Incarnation introduced a false conception of the union between God and the world. Its teaching about the end of all things he thought both irreverent and irreligious. Above all things, its claim to be the one religion. Its exclusiveness was hateful to him. He was too noble a man, philosophus nobilis, says Augustine, not to sympathise with much in Christianity, and seems to have appreciated it more and more in his later writings. Still his opinion remained unchanged. The gods have declared Christ to have been most pious. He has become immortal, and by them his memory is cherished. Whereas the Christians are a polluted set, contaminated and enmeshed in error, Christianity was the one religion to be fought against, and if possible, conquered. End of section 11